0: It was mind-blowing to have seen that, and they said, well, actually, it's very easy. It's quite simple. You
1: say yes, and you say and. Hi. You're listening to the Bring a Brick podcast with me, John Cooper. In this show, I interview people from all over the world who use improv and applied improvisation in their work. If you know improv, you're in the right place. If you're interested but you're not quite sure, I'll try and explain Listening, responding and connecting, being present and the yes and that's the basic building blocks of improv as well as being really great tools for performance, these things can also be applied to anything from business training, behavioural health, customer experience, agile development and loads more and that's what I do in this podcast, chatting to guests from as broader backgrounds as I can possibly find to make new connections. I'm a curious student, questioning, learning and going off at tangents to discover how people teach and benefit from the values of applying improvisation. This is the Bring a Brick Podcast. My guest this show is Paul Z. Jackson. Paul is a trainer of trainers and one of the founding members of the Applied Improvisation Network. He's authored a handful of books, including The Inspirational Trainer and 58 and a half Ways to Improvise in Training. He has a background in comedy and journalism, and if you go to his early biog, which I did, it reads pretty much like a who's who of the British comedy scene at the time. Hello, Paul. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Hi, John. My pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Yeah, really good to get you on. Really good to get you on. Um, my introduction was that accurate? Was that inaccurate? Can you shed a bit more light on who you are and what you do?
0: It was amazingly accurate. I recognised every detail.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I'm fascinated by um, the 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 early BBC radio producing stuff. You, you, it seemed like very much a who's who of the British comedy industry.
0: I was very lucky to be a BBC comedy producer and by being in that position you get access to the great talent that is around both wonderful writers and excellent performers who are willing to work for the the core rates that the BBC pays (laughs) in order to get that exposure and the, the cachet of being in on BBC shows so I got to work with great improvisers like Josie Lawrence and Paul Merton, Neil Malarkey Uh, Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen and more broadly with uh, comedians and performers ranging from Pam Ayres, who British viewers will remember um, through to Stephen Fry and uh,
1: Noddy Holder from Slade Excellent Excellent How how then does that relate to where you are right now? Then you've started out in comedy and, and right now I mean I've described you as a trainer of trainers. Uh, you're part of the improvisation academy and part of one of the founding members of the Applied Improvisation Network. What what is a typical what is a typical day or a typical week for you?
0: A typical week or a typical day would be to do a mix well a week, yeah. A week might contain a day or two of training, going out and working with either a group of facilitators or a group of trainers or a group of coaches, and I'm teaching them stuff. Or it might be working directly within an organisation to do a team building or to be a facilitator. Okay. And then other days I'm at my computer doing a lot of admin and email. Or if I get some of that cleared, then I can do more of the writing as well as the books. I write a lot of blogs and articles. And that goes back to the to the earlier profession before I got involved in comedy at all. I was a, a journalist working for a newspaper.
1: Okay, okay. In terms of the stuff that you do now, do, do you work within a particular sector, or do you just go where you're asked to go? Is there a certain particular kind of sector of business that you work in?
0: Anyone will have me. Um, that tends to be people who are quite adventurous and are willing to involve themselves with strange things like applied improvisation that are yeah. not yet mainstream. Mm-hmm. Also working with Solutions Focus, which is an approach to change that I've studied and written about, so people who know a bit about that. And that means they could come from any sector. So I've worked with the big accountancy firms in some of the business schools yeah. through to... Um, medium-sized companies, international companies, and I get to go to some quite interesting places as a facilitator. I've just been invited to facilitate a climate change conference in Nairobi, in Kenya, in a couple of months. So that's not typical, but it's not particularly unusual either, in that once or twice a year there'll be some exotic trip.
1: Okay. And is that because the kind of requirements are quite eclectic in terms of what they want?
0: Yes, it it is. Um, Through the Applied Improvisation Network, we've got involved as an organisation with the Red Cross, Red Crescent Climate Change Group and their humanitarian work. And they really like the idea of all of their events becoming more participative and more engaging so that they can get their message across. And they love the improvisation activities as one of the strands of that. So through that they got to know me as a facilitator and they involved me in planning and then facilitating some of their events.
1: Okay, so we've talked a little bit about what you do now. Let's just kind of go back to the early days and find out how you how you found improv and how improv kind of came into the work that you do. You've mentioned the kind of improvisers that you worked with um, back in the day, early doors, that, that, that kind of germinal time when... Uh, the the comedy store I'm guessing was was part of the scene because that's when the comedy store players kind of started out was was, was improv always a, a thing that was in front of you or did you find it? how did how did improv come to be part of your kind of environment, so to speak?
0: That's a great question and it it was all at that time um, when comedy store players were starting. And before that, I don't think improvisation had been part of anybody's scene, except for the very small people who'd been influenced by Keith Johnston,
1: yes.
0: um, the theatre machine, and some of the groups that came out of his work. And then there, for some reason or other, there was a bit of a flourishing with the Comedy Store players and the Rupert Pupkin Collective, and some groups would go to the Edinburgh Festival and do bits of improvisation, Yes. Uh, including one or two from america i think in those early days but it was mostly unknown mm-hmm. and it started to explode with whose line is it anyway mm-hmm. first on mm-hmm. the radio and then on tv yeah. it was on the radio before i joined bbc so that gives us some idea of how far back that was yeah and i'd have nothing to do with improvisation at all i was a journalist and working happily in cardiff and my brother asked me to come and see an improvisation show with him, which was at the Donmar Warehouse with Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen Yes. and their group, the Rupert Pupkin Collective. And I didn't want to go. I, I thought this was a terrible idea.
1: Right. Um, I liked
0: my plays or my comedy to have been written, rehearsed and directed.
1: So you weren't up for the idea of something being made Oop. on the spot?
0: No, no. Making things up on the spot, nobody in charge and no practice. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Those seem like three really bad ideas.
1: Do you still do you still come up against that stuff? sorry? Do you still come up against that stuff today in any of the stuff you do or are you kind of now past that where people know what they want you for because I think there's still an element of that maybe in some of the people that I talk to about kind of what is improv um, where there's a there's a little bit of resistance because it's as you say it's not mainstream stuff.
0: I think you're absolutely right and that there's even more of a myth now about improvisation, which is that it has to be performed, and it has to be funny, because people have learned about it from shows mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Whose Line Is It Anyway, mm-hmm. where people are performing and where they're funny. So I think all of these myths need to be uh, dispatched quite early on. Right. Uh, the, the thing about it being funny, you can get around by telling people about jazz, where they know about improvisation.
1: Yeah.
0: So clearly, that's improvised. And it's not usually funny, at least it's not supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. And with performing you can remind people that a lot of their conversations are not scripted, they make them up as they go along and that yes. therefore they are improvising every day. Yeah. yeah. So it's an everyday skill and it's a skill that can be articulated, identified and built up.
1: Yes. Yeah. Use those muscles, work those muscles. Okay, so your brother took you to see the Rupert Pupkin Collective.
0: And it was brilliant. <laughs> Uh, I was amazed at how inventive and contemporary and fresh it really was wonderful. But I was a journalist, so I was suspicious and thought they probably hadn't made it up um, on the spot. So I had to go again a week or two later, and they did a just as good a show, completely different. And they used written suggestions from me and my friends, so I, I believed them then. Right. And The key move, I think, was going to interview them. As a journalist, I went to interview Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen and was curious as to how they'd managed to do this seemingly impossible thing to such a high standard. Mm -hmm. It it was mind-blowing to have seen that. And they said, well, actually, it's very easy. (laughs) It's quite simple. You say yes and you say and.
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: I looked a bit disappointed. So they said, well, there's a book about it by Keith Johnston called Impro, Mm -hmm. if you really want to know any more. So I got the book. And I went to a couple of workshops that the comedy store players were running at the comedy store at the time, run by Kit Hollaback, right. who'd learned pro-improvisation in America. She's an yeah. American who'd come over here. And I couldn't keep going to that because it was in London and I was in Cardiff. So I just set my own group up in Cardiff and trained people and performed with them, doing uh, an improv comedy show that was half based on the comedy store players, half based on Rupert Pupkin and it, it developed a little bit into our own
1: way of doing it. So you had your own troupe, sort of. speak? I
0: had my own troupe. My first troupe of three troupes that I've had over the years,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we performed as support act to the socialist conjurer, Ian Saville, and to the great stand-up, Jerry Sadovitz. Oh, and we wow. did some shows at the Brecon Jazz Festival. We called ourselves Jazz Comedy.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: and then I got the job with the BBC, right. partly right. on the basis of having set up my own improv group in my spare time.
1: I see, and that's when you can kind of then now bring your passion for improv more into the work, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I brought it into my work as a producer. I was making comedies and quizzes. Some of those were scripted and some were more improvisational. Mm-hmm. And then after five years working with the BBC, I became a freelance and started teaching improvisation to members of the public. For non-performing purposes, so for being more creative, being more yes. confident, working better in teams, and that got taken quite quickly into organisations.
1: Okay, okay, wow. So let's let's just. I just want to duck back a second. So you're talking about you went to the BBC. Was there when you're talking about if you're working what it was a production role? You're saying
0: I was a producer and then a senior producer okay. in the light entertainment department for radio. So I was making shows for Radio for...
1: Radio 2, mm-hmm. uh, Radio 5 and the World Service. Did you pitch improv as a thing to be doing? Yes. Is, you did. And how, yes. was that, how was that received at that time?
0: Very cautiously. They'd already had Whose Lines Is Anyway. Okay, so they had a
1: precedent already. Well, it
0: meant they thought they'd done it. Okay. But for me, that was like saying, well, you, you've had a scripted sitcom, so you wouldn't have any more of those, would you?
1: Right. Yes. yes. There's
0: possibilities for endless numbers of improvised formats and Mm. ways of performing improvisation and we're seeing that now with the flourishing of improvisation performance through UK and around the rest of the world but there's many many ways of putting on a show but the BBC weren't really ready for that at that time Mm -hmm. and I wasn't talented enough as a producer to overcome that so I don't think I really found any great radio or TV formats even though I did put a fair bit of effort into trying to do so
1: yes how do how do you think if I'm just gonna branch off and and create a tangent as is as is my want um I've heard. Uh, uh, <laughs> um the the recent more recent attempts at getting improv on t v it seems like it's stuff that has never quite gelled in the last well quite a few years we've had um we had fast and loose yes and and we had um thank Terrible. god you thank God you're
0: here it's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what. What are your opinions of that? And do you do you have an idea of why that didn't work and what they could have done? Well, it
0: it, it is a tricky nut to crack because the audience on TV are both further removed from the action than the theatre audience, mm-hmm. and probably even more suspicious and even less caring that it is improvised. Yeah. Also, a lot of what improvisation brings can be gained on tv through other formats so i think a lot of the reality shows have that quality of being improvised you're seeing people living albeit an edited version but you're seeing them live something of their lives yeah
1: yeah
0: and panel shows are semi-improvised and get some of the best bits of improvisation without some of the downsides so it may be that we don't need pure improvisation on tv it it doesn't matter because it's there in enough other ways and it's perhaps more exciting as a, a theatre based, um, art form.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's the, de- there's, I think more so it's un- obviously scripted. There's a difference between live and watching it recorded. Whereas I think improv is very much a live experience. Yes. In that it is very, you know, the performers are in the now and the audience are in the now and, and you don't get the same experience watching a recorded version of an improvised show than you do from scripted. Yeah. I'm sure people will
0: keep trying to do it and there may be some improvisation channel where people who already know about it and love it can watch it yes. and it's done at low cost and very experimental and great things emerge from that. Yeah. That would surprise me at all because broadcasting has opened up in that way. There's yes. no news to entry anymore.
1: Yes, yes. We have a, we have a million channels just. You know, yeah. and, and then Netflix is throwing out a new show every week so there's no reason why you couldn't see something just break yes. out of that.
0: Exactly, I think it might be interesting to watch some of the devising of shows and development of shows using improvisation amongst other techniques, and mm-hmm. people enjoy seeing those processes yes. without expecting them to be a polished and finished product.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the you know, I mean, let's, and just just to just to cover my bases, stuff like uh, Thirty Rock and the SNL and the, the American approach to writing sketches, where there's you know, we they do lean quite a lot on improvisation within. Within a, you know, inside and outside of a script, there's a loose basis for it, but they don't tie it down too hard, so to speak.
0: That's right. And the places like um, Second City in Chicago, they'll do improvisation in order to generate a scripted show. Yes. Which are actually the shows that have made them more famous. Yes. The scripted touring shows are very reliable, but they've been developed by improvisation. In my third improvisation group that I set up, we had um, Rob Brydon, Ruth Jones, uh, Ian Morris, who's one of the co-writers and co-producers of the Inbetweeners, yes. and other people who turn out to be very talented, and they all use improvisation, not as an end result, but for development of characters and development of scripts. Yeah, They don't sit and write at keyboards, they walk around rooms in character, improvise with each other, and then... Take the best of those recordings to create the scripts that are then filmed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it's a really good way of doing it. Um, I, I. I have a character. I do stand up. I do character stand up, and I use similar methods when I'm doing that. And but sometimes I feel the need to sit in front of a blank sheet of paper just to make it look like I'm hard at work, and it's very painful. And I try to avoid it. Yeah, that, that's uh, <laughs> proper work. We don't want to get involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's duck back to to yourself and the the point at which um, you looked at entertainment and then looked at this as a training tool, as you were just saying. It's kind of like you were there. you were working as a producer, and then you saw the applications for this to be training yeah
0: again very lucky i was invited on a management training course and it happened to be a very good one and they invited all of us on the course to teach each other something okay and i scrabbled around for something i could teach to these uh, engineers and newsreaders and people from all over the bbc
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i offered them a a short session of improvisation activities, which I'd known from training the performers. And they loved it. And they got it straight away that this would help them with communication skills and help them feel more creative and more confident. Mm -hmm. And none of them wanted to go on to perform. So this detachment of the improvisation ideas and tools and techniques from performing was there right at the start. So the idea of applying improvisation in non-theatrical settings was the start of that. And I found people that would come on courses and organisations that would bring me in to teach presentation skills, to teach team building, to boost the creativity of a group of people.
1: Yes.
0: And people from the public would come to learn to be more confident. Mm -hmm. And the next step after that was finding other people who also did that. Who were mostly in America? Yeah, that was the beginnings of the Applied Improvisation Network.
1: I see, which is a
0: gathering point for anyone who's interested in using these techniques in organisational development, team development, and personal development.
1: Mm-hmm. How, do, how did that come about? The Applied Improvisation Network. I understand it was some. It was like a. It was called something else before it was called Applied Improvisation. It was well before that. It was like the Southwest Games Conference or something like that.
0: There um, was the a gaming conference called nasaga yes
1: which
0: is about simulations and games and we were a strand in that in our first year Mm -hmm. and then we called ourselves the summit for improvisation in business Mm -hmm. and then the applied improvisation network as we started to gather more people and find our own feet
1: I see. And when you were when you were teaching it um, early doors when you was did you use the term improvisation skills up front is that how you kind of pitched it or, or were yes. you were you saying it was presenting skills and then putting the improv in were you, you you were using improv up front as the term you were using
0: I had courses that I offered to the public called improvisation for life right. and the Daily Mail wrote an article about that that produced a lot of interest and then I ran some courses on confidence and creativity that either had improvisation in the title or in the subtitle. Yeah. In organizations, things like presentation skills and training trainers, the improvisation was not so upfront in the description. And that's still a debate that goes on till today of how much do you show that it's improvisation yeah. and how much do you use improvisation as a method that people may or may not be interested in, but it's not. Part of the
1: title. I'm very keen to get a timeline on the usage of the improvisation and improvisation for training. So, uh, when you had that Daily Mail article, um, were there any kind of, was there any skepticism? Obviously, you were a journalist yourself, so you would have known how to go about presenting yourself to a newspaper in terms of how they were going to report or do an article on that work.
0: Yes. I was always clear that there were benefits, like greater confidence, greater creativity, and so forth, and that the improvisational method were a set of techniques or tools that would get us there,
1: yeah. and
0: that was the set of tools or techniques that I would use, yeah. and that they would be quite unusual for a lot of people, they wouldn't have experienced anything like this before, and um, that, I think, was true at the beginning and remains true today.
1: Okay. Okay, and as I say, you are you are a journalist. and You've written. You, we we'll just. I just want to kind of talk about your books as well. Uh, when when did you start putting pen to paper and writing books on the stuff that you'd you'd learned?
0: Soon after that, because people did find my training methods unusual, and I hadn't come up through the route of being a, in HR or in training. I just started doing it, mm-hmm. so I didn't know what I was doing was unusual. I assumed everyone did it this way. Okay. It turned out they didn't, and that right. they were interested in these differences. So I wrote the, uh, the, f- the first book I wrote was called Impro Learning. So yeah. to answer your question, Impro was right up front there as a tribute partly to Keith Johnston. Mm-hmm. When the book came out again a couple of years later in paperback, the title was changed to The Inspirational Trainer. So the second publisher was not so interested in Impro I being I'm... in front in it.
1: Yes.
0: Then the next book was 58 and a half ways to improvise in training. So again, very clearly a book, practical handbook for facilitators, trainers, workshop leaders. Yes. And um, that's still in print and still popular. Mm-hmm. Then I wrote some books about solutions focus, which is not particularly or directly about improvisation, though it's highly consistent with it. And it's view yeah. of change and people's ability to adapt and respond to things. And then more recently, Last year I wrote a book called Easy, Your Life Path to Creativity and Confidence, where I gathered all my thinking over many years about improvisation and put that all into the one place.
1: Yes, I have that book in front of me now. That's the book that I'm looking at while I'm talking to you. Um, uh, yeah. very wise. It will bring you much inspiration and joy. Yeah. No, I've gone through it. Um, I really like some of the some of the key takeaways from that. They're really good. Um, yeah. Uh, solutions Focus, Solutions focus. you've just mentioned that, you mentioned it twice, and that's kind of on the on the fringes. Is that, is that where you take this work and apply it in a more broad way?
0: Yes, it's a comprehensive approach to change, which I don't think improvisation is. I think improvisation is a set of principles, tools and ideas that you can do a lot with. But people like an overarching idea of how change happens and how to go about making change happen more effectively. And solution focus, which, uh, derives originally from a therapeutic approach with some of the most difficult cases mm-hmm. provides that. And it's a very elegant set of ideas and principles. And so solution focus framework allows for a lot of improvisation in how people then go about things. It's about small actions, noticing what's different and responding to that difference. Okay. So fit being in the moment noticing what's going on around you and being willing to adapt and change
1: yeah um have there been any really big challenges you've had in what as you've developed this and you've taken it out and you've rolled out and gone gone to different places have you ever been uh challenged by anyone about the work that you do (laughs) Uh,
0: probably a lot but to say that might be misleading um all the steps in developing the Applied Improvisation Network have been really organic and pleasant and joyful. Yes. We, we started to have what turned out to be an annual conference, and people wanted to come to it, and it's grown and developed and become more successful over the years, with many, many people contributing to organising it and to putting on sessions in it and showing up and having great conversations and activities.
1: Mm-hmm. and. The Oxford Conference was wonderful and just to arrive there and go, oh, people use improv for other things and kind of kick the podcast off, to be honest. That's wonderful and typical that people
0: get inspired by it and they recognise that it, it is their tribe, that, that that is the group of people that they want yes. to be part of and that they're doing the same work as the other people fundamentally are doing yes. all over the world with all these different applications, but there's something that holds it together coherently.
1: Yes.
0: So I suppose the challenge to go back to your earlier question, for me is holding that concept clear and firm Mm -hmm. as the guiding principle of it all. And then whoever wants to join it, joins it and and makes it work. And anyone that doesn't respond well to that, they don't become part of it. So it looks after itself. And to show you how lazy I am, the Oxford conference was the first one that I was directly organising. All the others have been organised by other people with me and other board members as helpers and consultants to them.
1: I see. That would help answer one of the questions which I've got, which is kind of like, how does that work on a global scale?
0: Nearly 6,000 people now on the uh, Facebook group. And before that, we had 5,000 people on a community site on on the Ning platform. Mm -hmm. And there's probably been a few thousand people who have attended one or more conferences over the years. And it's it's run by a board, of which I'm now co-president. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, 12 people on the board r- spread around the world. very difficult to get a conference call that suits everyone for time. Yes. A number of working groups, all done by volunteers. Um, so this is built and grown purely by volunteer effort. We have one administrative assistant one day a week. That's the only... And um, even that's recent Mm -hmm. and very useful. So it's the actions and interactions of the members are what it is and what people want to do and others will support them in doing happens. And if nobody's up for anything or only one person wants to do something, then it doesn't happen.
1: Do you do you get kind of to? Obviously, you, you you have people approaching to join on a on a pretty regular basis. Um, what what kind of are there any examples of pretty diverse people who who've come across and said, "Oh, I've done improv work in X field or X industry um, that that hasn't that might be particularly unusual." There's some amazing strands.
0: There are uh, quite a few people now gathering around doing medical and therapeutic applications of improvisation. Mm -hmm. There's a a small bunch of speech and language therapists who who have discovered it and are applying it. There are researchers who look at all of the related fields and uh, write about how these connect up together. Most of the people that come to it are performers, Mm -hmm. uh, especially theatre performers, some musical and some dance or contact improvisers. And some are facilitators and managers who've discovered it through uh, reading about it or watching it and are not yeah. interested necessarily or at all in performing it. So there's a, a great meeting of uh, people around that core set of ideas, but who bring very different experiences to it. Yes. Sir. So it becomes a, a
1: richer brew as a result. Absolutely. I, th- I think that's one of the things that I appreciate Um, in working in improv in general that you have performers and non-performers together Hmm. Um, you know, uh, in in even in the improv troupe that I'm in with the CSC guys, it's kind of like there are a few people who are performer people who are you know ha- have job work in acting, and you know I, I'm a stand up. But then you also have people who are, who are, have been improvising as long as me, if not longer, and they just have what you would regard as as regular day jobs, and they yes. are exceptional improvisers. You know, uh, there there is no no tight definition of what makes a skilled improviser or someone who uses the tools thereof. Um, Yes, it's
0: anyone who's got a sufficient degree of open-mindedness to have a go at things, uh, flexibility to respond to what's happening around them, and an ability to stay present.
1: Do you have any challenges for 2017? I mean, you've got the conference, there's the conference coming up, this year in California, um, do you have anything else which is kind of on your agenda this year in terms of personal goals for where you want to take the improvisation work that you're doing? I'm
0: developing my own organisation in order to make a living. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges in that, uh, it goes back a bit to what we were talking about before with TV and radio, Yeah, is that there's so much interest now for people to connect remotely across the internet rather than live in a room. Yes. And it's a challenge to retain the spirit of improvisation when working with webinars or remote groups. Yes. as In in anything like the same way that you can do with a live group uh, in the same room as you. So it may be that that is just a different thing and we accept that, well, there may be cleverer and more interesting ways to do it, and we'll see if we can find them.
1: That's that's interesting. That's yeah. I I've noticed there is a big rise in online courses, um, in terms of it being a more acceptable thing. Whereas you know previously you'd have to go to somewhere to be in the room with that person, um, and it seems to be. I think perhaps social media and the fact that we are online a lot more has made it more accessible to a younger generation that they can just do stuff online like that. So that's, kind oh, they, of that's new territory that you're kind of exploring.
0: Yeah. Um, obviously, people like to be online and communicate in that way. And there are huge cost advantages for organisations that don't have to yeah. fly people around from city to city or even get them out of their own office or their own rooms. So there's a, a big economic driver to it. Yes. But you lose stuff if you do that. And the question is going to be, does it turn out that you lose so much that in the end we'll go back to having in the room sessions for the things that really matter that they yeah. can do it the best, yeah. or will we find ways around it that are satisfactory and good enough?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like you can be you can be in the moment when you know as as we are now we kind of like we are having a discussion in the moment. Um, and the, but yeah, it's like what 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 can what can the technology offer and what are the shortcomings, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I've answered 32 emails while we've been talking.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah. Oh, Okay, um, I'm going to ask you now, in, in kind of wrapping this thing up, I'm going to ask you what your favourite improv game is. It doesn't have to be a set one, it can be just what is your favourite improv game at the moment.
0: It's a rare workshop when we don't do some one word at a time activities. Mm-hmm. I think that was the one that really attracted me when i first was a student at workshops i thought okay i get this i i get how to do it how it works what's so great about it and been using it ever since
1: i saw recently that you did you did a, th- a thing called confidence lab which was a workshop that you ran in london is that right that's right
0: we asked AIN globally on our facebook page which activities did they think worked best to develop people's confidence Mm-hmm. And we picked six or seven that were suggested and tested them with the participants in the workshop and rated them on a grid of 10 for their scores and their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. So it's very much the beginnings of saying, well, we claim these activities deliver these results. Yeah. Which ones really do and which ones deliver which results? And there'll be a strand of that kind of work in future of people getting more sophisticated about what achieves what. We did discover in the confidence lab that the games that worked very badly were ones where people were thrown out to do something that was beyond what they could do. Okay. So if we just said, stand up and speak about this and give them the topic and really put them on the spot, exposed and performing, mm-hmm. they floundered, didn't like it, didn't think it had developed them. Yeah. Ones where there were easier things to do in a group that they could find their own speed succeed and then build on those successes gave them more confidence so there's a bit of a debate maybe or Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. ways of going about it of throwing people in the deep end which I don't think works well because people are already scared by the idea of improvisation as we were saying earlier Mm -hmm. doesn't work too well versus showing people that they're already improvising in natural conversation or doing very easy things like a small group doing word at a time stories Mm. and letting Mm. them explore and develop in that way by having a go succeeding at that building their confidence and then taking the next step
1: yeah Do, do you find that you adapt your approach based on the people that you're working with yes yeah so it's kind of like when you're talking about kind of like people's comfort zones and kind of pushing them too far out Some people like a challenge, some people want to play a little bit safe, so you'll kind of change your approach accordingly.
0: Exactly that. So one of the skills of being a facilitator is that we're also improvising and we're adjusting to the needs of the group. And one of the big things that we can adjust is how ready are they for what? And it's easy to test that and then adapt to fit where they're at and also using different modalities. So some people love working verbally and some for physical ways of working and some like drawing so you can move around these different modalities to give everyone a chance to show their skills and to flourish
1: it's really reaffirming when you hear those answers coming back about the ability over time to adapt to the people that are in the room because i think that that is key to the success i think of teaching improv per se is that there is a structure but the structure can be
0: moved yes you One know. of my principles is freedom within
1: structure. Yes, it's in the book. Yes, I saw it that. It is <laughs> a book, yeah. it's it's always in the structure. Yeah, I I I can get the page, I can find the page, and there it is. Um, brilliant. Uh, Paul Z. Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks, John. I've enjoyed the conversation very much.
1: There, is, is there anything you want to um, plug before we go? Any books you're working on, or any courses? Uh, I've got
0: a new book coming out in a month on resilience the pocketbook of resilience and there's loads of stuff on my website which is www.impro.org.uk dot
1: dot lovely Paul Jackson. thank you very much thanks john Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher or the Facebook page. The website bringabrinkpodcast.com has detailed show notes for all the guests with links to them and their work. If you want to contact me, John Cooper, get in touch and I'll do my best to answer your questions or point you in the right direction. There is a Patreon page where you can help fund the production of the show. If you're enjoying what you're listening to and want to become a Patreon, please click on the link on the website homepage. Contributions go towards website hosting, the time it takes to produce the show, it takes ages and allows me to work on new content that's hopefully valuable, entertaining and informative contributions are based on every new episode released personally i believe that good production values are key to getting more exposure so everything is greatly received just think of it like you're buying me a coffee and i'll see you on the next episode